this is Matt Pennington with Radio Free Asia. Welcome to our podcast, Eyes on Asia, where we look each week at some of the key stories in the region as covered by RFA. I'm joined by Paul Eckert, who heads up RFA's English service. How you doing, Paul? I'm fine, Matt. Thanks. And looking forward to another week of looking at Asia's hotspots. Indeed. There's a definite sense of deja vu about this week's Eyes on Asia. We dip into what's happening in Myanmar, where a shock military coup has rocked a country familiar with military overreach. We also look at North Korea, where the economy is, by all accounts, in the tank, and the Kim regime is dusting off its playbook of how to deal with an administration in Washington. Like the Kim family, you've observed a few transitions yourself, Paul. So what do you think people are watching for as regards North Korea? Well, I'm on my third Kim, personally, and Joe Biden will be the sixth U.S. president to inherit the North Korean nuclear program. North Korea is, of course, more than a nuclear issue, but from the world's point of view, that is a fundamental interest and concern. So we'll be looking into what North Korea has done since they've opened 2021 with a rare party congress and try to tease out a little bit about what Pyongyang may do towards Washington now that Joe Biden is in the White House. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of speculation about how the new U.S. administration is going to deal with North Korea. So I think we'll uh, we'll listen eagerly to what you've got to say on that. But first, we turn to Myanmar. Where RFA Burmese service has been kept busy with a precarious political situation. The country's transition to democracy over the past decade has often been described as bumpy. But the undercurrent of good news throughout this had been that the military that had run affairs for 50 years since independence were no longer at the apex of government. That has suddenly all changed. The military seized power on February the 1st, claiming that massive irregularities in the voter list skewed the result of November elections, which perhaps not coincidentally saw the military's proxy party crash to a humiliating defeat to the ruling party of Aung San Suu Kyi. Top leaders of the civilian government, including Suu Kyi, were arrested, and condemnation is now raining down on Myanmar's military. To discuss these developments, I'm joined by Jormin Tun from RFA Burmese. Welcome, Jormin Tun. Hi, Matt. Thank you very much for having me. So, Jormin Tun, a new parliament was due to convene today on February the 1st, but instead the military launched a coup. Can you describe what happened? Yes, all the elected MPs in 2020 uh, elections were in Nebido's uh, municipal hostel, where most MPs stay in, in the capital, were already planning to attend the new parliament session. Even the schedule was out. But between 2 a.m. and 4 a.m., the military moved in to detain key leaders nationwide, including the state councillor, Aung San Suu Kyi, and the president, Wimian. Uh, chief minister from states and regions, and key energy leaders and supporters too. We have been trying to reach all government officials and key energy leaders since the initial arrest. Telecommunications and internet was totally shut down in Nebido since the midnight in Myanmar. At 8 a.m. local time, the military-owned Nyawadi TV announced that the power was taken over by the military in accordance with the 2008 constitution. We are trying to reach in the D.C. office and trying to communicate people in the country to, in order to confirm who were really arrested, how the coup was happening, going on. Vice President Mian Sui, who was a retired general nominated for the post by the military in 2016, became an interim president. 
and he transferred the power to the military chief, Senior General Mayor Online, in accordance with 2008 Constitution. Okay, I think there's going to be a lot of debate about the constitutionality of the military seizing power on that. I think most experts would say if they've unseated the sitting president, they're violating the Constitution. But anyway, I guess that's a debate for another day. I saw that the UN said that at least 45 people have been arrested, and it seems like a very fluid situation. In some regional levels, some ministers are released. The MPs who were besieged in uh, Hostel and Nebidor, they were there stay. They are back online now, but they don't know they will be arrested or sent back, or they will be under the detention in the hostel. We don't know. It's stay fluid. So, so far, the military announced that they're going to take over the power for one year as an emergency situation, and then after that, they're going to conduct an election and then transfer power to the winner of the election. Okay. So what was the military's justification for this coup in the first place? In first announcements, the military said the NRD government leaders in Union Election Commission, UEC, had acknowledged the demands from the military to resolve the election disputes before the new parliament. Now, they're claiming that there were major irregularities in the voter list that I understand that they haven't sort of identified specific incidents of fraud on November 8, but they say there was 10 million suspect names on the election voter list. Is that right? Yes. So it's a 10 million possible voter frauds could not be ignored, but it is a good question whether that could change any substantive result over the seat. Maybe a dozen seats could overturn the reserve if it actually existed but not the majority of the, the votes or seats in the parliament. In the leaked documents uh, from the analyses, there was a handwritten statement by a representative from the military chief conveyed to Aung San Suu Kyi, just delay the parliament and resolve this issue. Energy leaders object military's offer, and then the military chief decided to take over the power. Before then, even opposition party has no idea. They kept saying they're going to attend the parliament. But the night before, they changed the tone. So it is very uh, interesting unfolding. Okay. And to put this in perspective, the NLD won more than 80% of the seats and the military's proxy party won little more than 5%. But we shouldn't forget that the military is guaranteed a quarter of the seats in the parliament. So can you tell me how has Aung San Suu Kyi reacted to the coup? And, and do we know where she is now? According to the party leader, patron chairman, after his retirement around 2018, Aung San Suu Kyi met with her close associates and told that she believed the military might take over the power. According to the statement posted on NRE chair page, in the statement, Aung San Suu Kyi said, the military's recent ad is just trying to put the country under the military dictatorship again and ask the people not to accept it. Okay, so she's urging people to oppose the coup. Do we know where she is now? She is under house arrest. Previously, she was under arrest in government office. But a few hours ago, one of her close associates posted on his social media account that Aung San Suu Kyi had been sent to her residence in Nebido. She will be there under um, securities. 
All right, all right. So that's a, that's kind of uncertain what's going to happen to her because the military is saying they're going to hold power for a year. What has the international reaction been like? It's interesting. Uh, even though it's a Sunday evening and even in the Western Wall, they immediately put out statement condemning the um, the military coup, including State Department, uh, U.S. government, also the U.N. One interesting statement from Chinese uh, government is they ask both sides to solve the differences according to the constitution. So they are not really strong against the coup, but they are trying to be just be careful and peaceful, something like that. Yeah, that's quite an ambiguous statement. I see that quite a few U.S. congressmen are now calling for stiffer sanctions against Myanmar. What do you think this situation, this coup means for Myanmar, which, as we know, spent 50 years under direct military rule and then it emerged from that military rule about a decade ago. What do you think this means for the future of the country? For immediate future, at least one year, freedom of movement, freedom of information could be uh, suppressed. According to sources, several sources, the military has said they don't really care about international response or reactions. They only care about people, local people, whether they were protests or confrontation on the street or something like that. But in terms of international uh, reaction, there are going to be more sanctions and there are going to be more pressure from the um, Western governments, including the U.S. and also uh, the uh, EUs and several other states. That could have uh, a lot of impact on the uh, civilians who have been uh, who are very poor already, and if they were squeezed again. Uh, under the pandemic, you know, the COVID-19 situation, situation is very worse uh, for for the people. And military, they will suppress all the um, possible confrontation from the uh, students and monks and activists. And then the pressure will come again. It is very difficult situation for the people uh, Myanmar right now. Okay. Jominton, thank you very much for talking us through what's happening in Myanmar. It's a very serious situation and we'll be watching it closely. All right. Thank you very much for having me. You're listening to Eyes on Asia, a Radio Free Asia podcast. So from political uncertainty in Myanmar, we shift to the grim predictability of Kim regime rule in North Korea. Thanks, Matt. In some ways, it's unpredictable or uncertain, but in other ways, we are discussing news that could have been in the headline 25 years ago. Today, we're welcoming He Jung Yang, a native of South Korea's bustling capital, Seoul, who joined RFA in 2009, 10 years after she moved to the United States. She began her career at the Korean Broadcasting System, KBS, in 1985 as an English language broadcaster. Thank you, He Jung, for making time for us. Thank you, Paul, for inviting me. We know how much time you put into keeping an eye on North Korea. (laughs) And I'm wondering, in a busy time of the year, what's the most important story or theme out of North Korea so far in 2021? Well, I would say the most important development in North Korea this year would be the 8th Korean Workers' Party Congress, which was held from January 5th through the 12th. Party Congress is important for North Korea watchers because one of its main purposes is set the direction for the country. 
seventh Congress held in 2016 was first one under Kim Jong-un's guidance, and they announced the five-year economic plan. At the Eighth Party Congress, however, Kim Jong-un admitted the failure of achieving the goals of this five-year plan and announced a new five-year plan. How bad is the economic situation in North Korea now compared to normal when it's never very good? It was especially hard for North Korea in 2020 due to triple hardships like tidal UN sanctions against North Korea or natural disasters, just typhoon and flood, and full border closure due to pandemic blocking trade with China. Were there any statements he did admit that things were disappointing on the economic front? But did he say anything forward-looking that would point the way out of North Korea getting out of its economic troubles? Well, unfortunately, there was no sign of economic reform, rather more state control over market and politics than economy. So his opening speech, Kim Jong-un admitted failure of his five-year economic plan in almost every category, but he was not blaming himself for the others. He claimed the main problems were external, but the party turned the enemy's fierce sanctions into a golden opportunity to increase self-reliance and internal power. Kim is uh, trying to find solutions to economic problems, domestically emphasizing North Korean-style socialism or self-reliance. Kim mentioned wow. the corruption as well. There are Tunju, like kind of mover rich in North Korea, as you know, like private entrepreneur expanding their businesses and economic power, which can possibly be transitioned to political influence involving corruption. So now North Korea is set to control this dangerous trend for the regime by trying to regain its control over the businesses of Tunju. And this uh, new five-year economic plan also involves domestic production of inputs, like not much of foreign trade. Like in North Korea, identified the metal and chemical industries as the key elements of five new economic plan. However, such industries also require major investments from outside. Okay, well, that's a lot to do, but uh, North Korea remains deeply isolated on the international stage. And of course, with the coronavirus border shut down, also cut off from China and cut off from South Korea. Uh, a lot of news uh, this month. Uh, U.S. President Joe Biden is now the sixth U.S. president to have to deal with North Korea's nuclear program, mm -hmm. beginning back with the first George Bush. My own personal experience as a journalist dealing with North Korea also began with the first nuclear crisis in the early 1990s. What's new this time in the eyes of a veteran North Korea watcher in terms of U.S.-North Korea relations? Or are we going back to an earlier type of dealings between Washington and Pyongyang that we saw under other U.S. presidents? Well, unfortunately, North Korea claimed the U.S. as the primary obstacle and biggest enemy to the development of its revolution. As they have always said, Kim repeated his country's desire for peace, but based on deterrence, that means nuclear development, right? So North Korea talked about plan for a massive military buildup, um, despite the economic difficulties that they are faced with. And Kim also announced the development of like a super large hydrogen bombs and multiple warhead missiles and hypersonic gliding flight warheads and capability to destroy targets with a range of 15,000 kilometers. As you know, mainland US is under that category, right? So mm -hmm. Kim is sending 
these messages not only to the US, but also to its own people. He's saying despite all those symmetries he had with uh, like President Trump and South Korean President Moon Jae-in, the threats from outside are not over and the North Koreans still need to tighten their belts. Like the North Korea seems to be signaling to re-engage with the Biden administration though, by refraining from conducting the ICBM, like the intercontinental ballistic missiles or nuclear tests, but with a stronger leverage of nuclear deterrence. The Biden administration is expected to pursue principled diplomacy with North Korea, mixing humanitarian aid to North Korea with a pressure and bottom-up diplomatic approach, starting from like working level negotiations and cooperation with not only alliances, such as South Korea and Japan, but also countries like China and Russia as well. So we will see. Uh, I feel a lot of deja vu because I've followed this for a long time. And I was based in Tokyo when Kim Il-sung passed away in 1994. And uh -huh. what's going to happen next and all of that. And, you know, we, we, we North Korea keeps surviving and uh, some aspects change. I guess you could say that the one change over the years is that North Korea has gotten more nuclear weapons and more missiles, even though we haven't seen the ultimate testing of the, the entire system. The other issue on Kim's agenda seems to be relations with China and expanding economic relations with China. What do we make of this? Well, although no Chinese delegation attended the party congress this year, the party newspaper, Nodongshima, North Korea's party newspaper, highlighted messages from China because North Korea knows as it deals with the Biden administration, China will continue to be supportive of North Korea while emphasizing the importance of China playing a role in its efforts to resolve the nuclear issue with North Korea and U.S. That seems like a reasonable goal for North Korea, not that they have a lot of choice, but has China shown any sign of wanting to respond to this? Well, we haven't seen any response or reaction to this North Korea's change of its position toward China compared to last year when their relations were at the lowest point. Well, we spent a lot of time at RFA English covering some of your fine stories, the Korean services stories along the borders with China. We get a lot of stories about policies, crackdowns, shootings, smuggling. But right. probably the most important border that North Korea has is the one that's totally closed up by the demilitarized zone. And that's the border with South Korea. Mm -hmm. What's going to happen? Can we expect any improvement with relations between Seoul and Pyongyang? Not so positive, I think. North Korea complains about South Korea's joint military exercise with the U.S. and uh, South Korea's imports of military equipment, etc. So it disregarded South Korea's offer of like COVID quarantine or tourism cooperation as inessential issues. That means uh, small issues, signaling it only wants big issues like security guarantee or end of war declaration. So even if uh, South Korea wants to go ahead with the engagement with North Korea, it cannot do too much without damaging U.S.-South Korea alliance, which South Korea is pretty reluctant to do at this point. It seems, again, the dance partners change a little bit, but in fact, the same issues persist. We're going to finish up with a little focus on another thing that the world becomes very curious about it from time to time, and that's the ruling family of the Kims. Kim Jong-un, his father, his grandfather, 
But now a new figure has emerged from the family, and that's the sister, Kim Yo-jong. What can you tell us about uh, the recent movements and statements of Kim Yo-jong, in- including her demotion, as it was reported, at the Eighth Party Congress? Kim's younger sister, Kim Yo-jong, is no longer an alternate member of the Politburo, but she's still on the Central Committee. And considering North Korea's diplomatic stalemate with South Korea and U.S., where Kim Yo-jong was at the forefront and went too far, actually, by blowing up the inter-Korean liaison office in Kaesong, it might have been difficult to elevate her. She still seems to be playing a pretty significant role as a personal assistant to her brother. Despite the demotion, she even issued a statement in her own name during the party congress, harshly criticizing South Korea. So she is expected to continue to play an important role when negotiations with the U.S. or South Korea are resumed. One explanation for her demotion was that she mismanaged South Korean affairs, but her job, as far as it looked last year, was to yell at South Korea, and she did that just this week. So I don't know how they're defining success with their relations with South Korea if if that's the sort of style of diplomacy they're approaching. Well, last year when um, Kim Jong-un didn't mention anything bad about South Korea or U.S., and Kim Yo-jong was at the forefront of, you know, criticizing South Korea and the U.S., uh, we were analyzing that it might they might be playing the role of bad cop, good cop, good cop, bad cop. Oh, that's <laughs> well, great. Yeah. brother and sister, right? That's great. If you have her in a situation where she doesn't have direct formal responsibility, she doesn't have to own everything she says because he's the boss. Yeah, maybe strategic positioning between the brother and sister. There is no shortage of stories on North Korea that I'm sure you're going to be working on in the coming year. So I want to thank you for spending time with us and sharing your insights. Thank you, Hee-jong. Thank you very much, Paul. It was a great pleasure for me. So that was Hee-jong Yang of RFA Korea, which broadcasts in Korean language into North Korea. I'm intrigued, Paul, by Hee Young's theory that Kim Jong Un and his sister were playing good cop, bad cop with South Korea. I wonder if they'll do the same with the United States. Well, Kim's younger sister, Kim Yo Jong, sat within shouting distance of U.S. Vice President Mike Pence at the 2018 Winter Olympics in South Korea, and that rose her profile a little bit. But it's probably too early to say. The same issues uh, await the Biden administration that the Trump administration faced. I just kind of suspect that they're going to go at it a different way, like the less of the theatrical top-down diplomacy that we saw with Trump. Well, indeed, they've put back in office a large number of veteran diplomats from the Obama era or earlier and take a more traditional approach, uh, not one for theatrics. Of course, Donald Trump had a, was a showman and wanted this, the TV photo ops and things like that. But uh, I think we're going to see a more conventional, lower key approach to the North okay. Korean Peninsula. So less, less whiplash, I think, for all of us. Okay, well, thanks a lot, Paul. And uh, for those of you listening, please join us again next week for another sampling of RFA's coverage. Until then, you can visit our website. That's rfa.org. Our past podcasts are at that site or on other platforms like Spotify and iTunes. Just search for Eyes on Asia. If you've any feedback or suggestions, please drop us a line or attach an audio message. Our email is eoa at rfa.org. That's eoa, not voa. It stands for Eyes on Asia. 
I'm Matt Pennington with Radio Free Asia with Paul Eckert. This podcast series is created by Leo Kim and produced by Radio Free Asia. Thank you for listening and please join us again.